On January 13th, 2018, the peace in Hawaii was disrupted. And I got to say, about this time of year, for me, every year, Hawaii looks really attractive. I'm tired of looking at snow. I'm tired of wearing a jacket. I'm tired of needing to have the heater and the defroster on on the way to work in the morning. This looks really, really good. But on that morning, January 13, 2018, everyone who wasn't already awake in Hawaii was awakened because all of their phones went off. You ever have one of those moments where like a tornado warning or an amber alert goes off? Well, everybody's phone went off that day and everyone got the same message. Message said this, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Can you imagine getting a message like that and beginning your day that way? I mean, Mondays are always hard, but that particular Monday must have been an especially rough day. And and getting that message kind of fit the pattern. North Korea around that time in 2018 was firing off a, a series of test missiles into the Sea of Japan. And so seeing that a ballistic missile was headed towards Hawaii was not that out of the range of possibility. And so everyone who got this message at 803 on January 13th, 2018, went into a panic. People who were driving on the freeway said cars began passing them at 100 miles an hour. There were accidents as people panicked and tried to get where they were going and tried to get inside. People took their families towards shelters and bomb shelters only to find them locked. And they were terrified that they would not be protected by what was coming. There's a story of a man who said goodbye to his family because he thought they were going to die only to begin to have a literal heart attack from the stress and the anxiety. Well, here's the thing. If you remember this story and you watched it on the news, there was no missile. It was a mistake. It was an accidental message that was sent out. A government worker who's responsible for testing the emergency alert system Push the wrong button. Instead of hitting the test button, he hit the real button. And the message went out, not with ending, this is only a test, but ending with, this is not a drill. And so for 38 minutes, the public was panicked in Hawaii. People went online to try to determine what was truly happening. Government officials tried to send tweets and messages out there. And 38 minutes later, a second alert was sent. And that text was this. There is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. Repeat, false alarm. Now, I, I got to say, I don't know that anything productive happened on that Monday in Hawaii. I think everyone came off the adrenaline crash. Everybody looked for some caffeine to try to center themselves, although caffeine isn't always the greatest thing if you're coming off of adrenaline, but it's what we do. And so as as kind of history looked back, you saw several different things went wrong and people were able to now tell this incredible story about this mistaken text message. But here's the thing. The problem wasn't just that people received a terrifying message that fit news patterns, even though that was a problem, and there's a reason why people believed it. The problem was that people heard something that was fictional, and they believed it to be true. And and though that is a problem, it isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that people did things in light of that lie. 
They didn't just believe in their minds that there was a missile headed towards Hawaii and they should take shelter. They began to act as if that were true. One man literally almost died from a heart attack as a result. People tried to get into storm shelters. People got into car accidents. They drove at unsafe speeds. Put another way, they didn't just believe a lie for a time. They lived a lie. And as our intro video mentioned, the greatest dangers when it comes to lies aren't just the things that we believe. They're the lies that we live. And we now live at a time in which on a regular basis we're asking ourselves what is true and what is false. What is real and what is not real. In 2017, Collins Dictionary named fake news its word of the year. Which to me feels like it's a failure because fake news is two words and so a dictionary should know that. But anyway, that's beside the point. In 2018, Dictionary.com named misinformation their word of the year. And in 2023, Merriam-Webster named authentic their word of the year. It seems like each and every year in growing ways, we're struggling to try to understand what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's false. And the reason why this is important, and this is a principle that we're going to come back to for the next several weeks, is that we live what we believe, whether they're truth or whether they're lies. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. You actually live what you truly believe. And the, the things that you believe, whether they're truths or lies, they show up in your everyday life. And, and we're going to be talking about this topic for the next six weeks because as of today, we're 40 days from Easter. Now, what's interesting is in November, when I tell you that we're 40 days from Christmas, everyone goes into a panic. There's like a physical manifestation in the room when I tell you it's 40 days till Christmas. But if I tell you it's 40 days from Easter, you don't panic at all. You're like, okay, cool. That's nice. And that's because Christmas is actually the high point of our culture's year. Some of you who I consider to be a little bit sick and twisted start listening to Christmas music in July. <laughs> Others of you that had nothing else better to do start shopping for presents in August and September. Your calendars for December are full by October. And then from basically mid-November to the end of the year, it's just a blur. And that's because Christmas is the high point of our culture's year, retail and otherwise. But here's the thing. Easter, not Christmas, is the linchpin of our faith. Christmas is not the high point of our faith. It's the high point of our culture. Easter is the thing that our whole faith depends on. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. If you take away Easter, if you take away resurrection, everything of our faith falls apart. And so in a world that prepares you really well for Christmas, but doesn't really prepare at all for Easter, we want to prepare you well. And so beginning today, we're launching a series that we're calling Live No Lies. The subtitle of this series is Overcoming the Three Enemies of Your Soul. 
Our hope is, is that over these six weeks, over these 40 days between now and Easter, that we will equip you and help you to understand what are the things that might get in the way of you experiencing all that Jesus did for you on the cross and the empty tomb. What are the obstacles that stand in the way of you experiencing the grace and the mercy and the resurrection that Jesus wants to bring in your life? And, and this series is unashamedly inspired by a book by the same title, Live No Lies. The, the author, John Mark Comer, you heard him in the intro video. We're not preaching the book. I'm not taking the next six weeks off and then just copy and pasting sermons from the book. Although it'd be nice to have some time back every week if I could do that, but that's not how we operate here. This book is inspired by a passage of scripture that I want to encourage you to get to know over the next few weeks. If you have your Bibles, will you open up to Ephesians chapter 2? We were in Ephesians last week as well, and Ephesians is part of this group of four books. As one of our uh, nine o'clock attenders told me, it's uh, go eat popcorn is one way to remember it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, we see this very interesting framework that we're going to spend time unpacking over the next six weeks. Ephesians is near the back of your Bible. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. And in Ephesians 2, this is what we read. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the disobedient. Paul writes, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. If you were watching the screen here, you notice there were some words bolded there. And those words were world, flesh, and devil. For 2,000 years, the church has grouped together this triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil as the three enemies of the human soul that dominate us and keep us captive to all of the things that Jesus wants to free us from. Now, when Paul writes Ephesians 2, he talks about these things in a past tense. He's writing to the believers in Ephesus and he says, these things used to hold you captive. But but here's what I've discovered as a pastor is speaking to a group of people, many of whom are followers of Jesus. The truth is that these three enemies dominate some of us presently, not in the past, not in the way, way back, but here and now, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, the truth is many of us in this room are being dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's the thing. Experiencing salvation doesn't immunize you from these enemies. You don't become a follower of Jesus and then all of the sudden you're immune or powerful over or can't be defeated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, in some ways, I think we get overly secure and overly confident as followers of Jesus. And so today, as we dive into the first of these enemies, here's the big idea that we're going to unpack, and and you can take notes if you'd like to. Big idea is this. It's tough to win a battle you don't even realize you're fighting. It's tough to win a battle you don't even realize you're fighting. 
The battles that we lose are the ones that we don't even know that we're in. And so today as we begin, I just want to pause for a second and speak to a couple groups in the room that I think this may be a challenging day or a challenging series for. Some of you, you don't consider yourself super academic. And so what's going to happen today and over the next couple weeks is going to challenge your mind. And I'd encourage you to hang with us. Each week is going to be two weeks on a topic. So today and next week is the world. Then it's two weeks on the flesh. Then it's two weeks on the devil. There's some things that we're going to lay groundwork for today and then explain further. So my goal is to keep all of you with me today. Not lose anybody. But, but some of you, this may stretch you. Others of you, you may find this to be more challenging and confrontive. You say, Scott, you're, gonna, you're stepping on my toes today. I am. Because you have an enemy. And he wants to keep you from all of the new life that Jesus came to bring you. And so I'm going to get in your kitchen, if you can use the metaphor. I'm going to push into some areas of your life that may make you uncomfortable. Not because I'm better than you. I'll share in a little bit about how I'm susceptible to these very things. But because I care about you and I love you. So... If this stretches you, I just want to give you a warning before I start pulling the rubber band and stretching you a little bit today, okay? Today, we're going we're gonna to explore three key questions today that, that we'll kind of dig deeper on next week. And the first one is this, what is the world? I try to not assume that people know what I mean when I use words. And so the world is a phrase that is commonly thrown around in church circles, but I don't think a lot of us know what it means. And there in Ephesians 2, when Paul talked about the world, he was using the Greek word cosmos or cosmos. It's the phrase, the world. And it's often a phrase that you might hear if you were in some kind of uh, science class or some philosophy class. What's interesting, though, is in Greek and in English, you have the same word that means different things. So let me give you an example. The word right here, let's say it all together. Ball. Ball, okay? One word, but very different meanings. Last weekend... 200 million people watched a game about Taylor Swift. I'm sorry, it's a game about a ball. It's a ball game. It's a ball game. What happens when you get dressed up in a gown or a tuxedo? You go to a ball. If you've had a great holiday weekend on Tuesday when you go back to work or you see a friend, you say, hey, I really had a ball this weekend. Same word radically different meanings. The same thing is true in scripture with the phrase cosmos or world. For example, in Romans 1.20, Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. He's speaking about the universe, about creation, about the material world. In the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God is not speaking of Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon. He's speaking about you and me, people, humanity. But then there's the kind of world we're going to talk about today that's described in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, that's about systems and practices. Again, if your Bible is still near you, go from Ephesians 2 to 1 John 2. 
very close to the end of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, just go forward a little bit. 1 John 2, and Kelly, if you wouldn't mind advancing these slides for me. Beginning in verse 15, this is what we read in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So in your notes, if you're taking notes today, in that sermon, there's a definition of the world that, that I'm here to give you today, and it's this. The world is a system of ideas and practices that are rooted in rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. That's the world that we're going to be talking about in this series. It's not the planet and it's not people, although they are affected by this system. It's a system of ideas and practices that are rooted in two things, rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Now, I I did borrow this from John Mark Comer, but he's way more wordy than I am, so I saved you some writing and I simplified it down. And what's interesting is that this rebellion and redefinition is not new. It's as old as humanity Because if you go back to the garden, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are tempted, in that moment, the temptation comes in two forms, rebellion against God and a redefinition of good and evil. Adam and Eve are tempted with, did God really say that? And then they're told, God's holding out on you. Then they're told, Well, you know that thing that you were told that you shouldn't do? It's okay. If you do it, you'll be like God. The first temptation was rebellion and redefinition. And we continue to experience that same kind of temptation today. And the world's ideas and practices, they show up in lots of places. They show up in the values of this world. Every day, you are inundated with the values of this world. They come through your smartphone and through your TV. They come through systems of education and approaches to work and economics. They show up in morality, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what's kind and what's unkind, what's loving and what's hateful. They show up in social norms, what's acceptable. And then they show up and it comes to trends. And so that is what the world is. And and we'll dive again deeper into that next week. But second question we got to dive into is it's great to have the definition, but how does the world shape us? How does the world mold us? How are we influenced by this enemy? And and one of the illustrations that I found in preparing this message is is the image of this tool right here called a sextant, S-E-X-T-A-N-T-E. It was used during the great era of exploration when before we had GPS and directional maps that adjusted to our position aligned by satellites. You would use a tool like this if you were an explorer like Magellan or Cook or others to determine when you were on the open ocean where you actually were and where you were actually headed. And you would use this tool in correspondence with an unchanging object. 
the stars. And for centuries, this is how we explored the world, was a tool like this. The problem is, is that the world invites us to shift our definition of what's right and wrong and good and evil from something unmoving to ourselves, from the stars to our own understanding. And let me give you a concrete example. When I went to college in 2002, my computer looked a little bit like this. My parents bought me a gateway computer to send me to college. During that freshman year, I dyed my hair blonde. I bleached my whole head. I tried to find a photo this week, couldn't find it. I know you're sorry, you want to see that photo. I do too. But when I got to college, it was my first experience with a computer that my parents were around. We had one in our living room, and that was the one family computer. For those of you, this was called the early 20th century. That's the dark ages. And so we had one phone line into our dorm room. We split it to the phone and to the computer. And so every day we would go online. And one of the things I discovered during this time is that lots of my friends were using these really interesting websites (laughs) called LimeWire, Napster, and Kazaa. And for those of you who don't know, these are file sharing websites where you are basically able to access any songs, any movies you wanted for free. And so I was in college and I was broke and I wanted music to listen to, movies to watch. So I started downloading stuff like all of my friends. The word for that is stealing. (laughs) But I wanted it and I didn't have the money and everybody else was doing it. So I figured it was okay. So I pirated my freshman year over a thousand songs. And I was actually pretty, pretty mild in my downloading compared to some of my friends. But according to us, it wasn't that big of a deal. Until one day we heard a story about a college student on the East Coast who was arrested by the FBI and was facing years in prison. And guess what happened? We deleted all of these applications and websites from our computer. <laughs> We didn't do it because suddenly we knew it was wrong. We did it because we didn't want to get caught. And I tell that story about me as an illustration that we all determine our values and practices by something. All of us determine what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, what what the good life looks like and what we're going to do by something. And the challenge is, a lot of us, that something is ourselves. It's us. It's what's right in our own eyes. And the scriptures are replete with examples of the danger of this. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In Romans 12, we're told, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind And then in 1 Corinthians 3, we're told that no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. Scripture encourages us from the Old Testament to the New Testament that the influence of the world is present, nudging us and encouraging us to decide what's good and what's right and what's wrong based upon ourselves, trusting in our own wisdom. And now that we have these devices, it's become even more challenging. You've probably, if you're on social media at some point, heard that something was trending And what that means is that lots of people are talking about it or sharing it or promoting it. And one social researcher made this statement about that reality. Rene DiResta said, if you make it trend, you make it true. And before you kind of scoff at this, how many of us have told somebody something, shared something, posted something, only have to go back later and quietly delete it because we discovered it wasn't true? Almost all of us probably. Because we see everyone posting about it or talking about it, therefore it must be true. And every day and everywhere we are being shaped. And the question is, what is shaping us and to what end are we being shaped? And this is why the big idea is what it is, that it's tough to win a battle. You don't even realize you're fighting. And so I'm introducing some of you to this, and this is why I warned you in the beginning. I'm, I'm making your life more difficult. Hopefully I'm not making you paranoid, but hopefully I'm making you more aware that there is systems and practices in this world that are rooted in rebellion against the God you just spent 15 or 20 minutes singing about and rooted in a redefinition of good and evil, not based upon something unmoving, but based upon yourself. And if you don't know you're in that battle, friends, you're going to get your butt kicked every single day. And so that's a good place to move to our third question. So what should we do in response? Now, I told you we're going to take this series two by two, kind of like Noah's Ark. And so next week, we'll dive into more of this. So I'm just going to scratch the surface today. So if you're like, Scott, I want to hear more on that. Good. Come back next week. Here's the first thing we need to do in response. We need to be aware and we need to be on guard. Awareness truly is half the battle when it comes to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because when you are unaware, you're constantly in danger. Let me give you the scariest story I've been told so far this year. A couple weeks ago in Hong Kong, a CFO of a multinational company hopped on a Zoom call. The way you do when you're the CFO of a multinational company. He hopped on the Zoom call and he saw all the other executives in his company on the Zoom call. And on the Zoom call, they begin to talk about some things their business needed to do. And as the CFO, he has full power to access all the accounts of the company. So during this 30-minute Zoom call, directed by his coworkers, the other executives in this company, he made 15 transactions totaling $26 million. The problem is... The faces he saw on the screen were not his coworkers. 
They were artificially, intelligently generated images of his coworkers based upon available video and audio online that hackers used to individually create profiles to interact with him on the call. They looked like his coworkers, they sounded like his coworkers, and they responded like his coworkers. And the scammers that day stole $26 million from his company with that hack. You've got to be aware and on guard. Some of you didn't even know that was possible. So now, if I'm on a Zoom with you, you're probably going to interrogate me and try to figure out if I'm actually the person that you're talking to, which might be more difficult, but it might be wise. Because when that is possible, you should be on guard for it. Okay? That's letter A. Letter B. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Apostle Paul lived in a world that was not that different from ours. They didn't have our technology, but a lot of the same values and practices and systems were present in the first century Roman world that are present in 21st century America. And here's what he says in Romans 12. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In a world that is seeking to form you to its systems and practices, that's seeking to form you to rebellion against God and redefining what's good and evil, you have to resist that. And the way you do, according to Paul, is you renew your mind. What is that? Renewing your mind is recommitting to look at your life through the lens of God's truth. That whenever you're faced with a decision or an evaluation or an opportunity, you're not saying, hey, what do I want or what can I do or what is everyone else doing around me or what is trending? You go back to scripture and you look at your life through the lens of scripture so that you're remembering what is true and what is good and what is righteous and what is holy and who God is and who he is calling you to be. We'll dive into that more next week. But letter C is this. If we're going to respond to this shaping, then we need to be in community with others who are also resisting the world while loving those caught up in the world. You know, that guy who lost $26 million in that fateful Zoom call, he, he was alone. He thought that he was with friends. He thought he was with people he could trust. But truthfully, he was alone. And you, like him, will not persist in resisting the world alone. As one of my friends who's in business said, they needed checks and balances. They needed systems to verify that what they were being told was true. In the same way, if you're going to live in this world, you will, you will not persist in resisting that world alone. Back to the big idea. It's tough to win a battle. You don't even realize you're fighting. It's also tough to win a battle by yourself. You need other people who are trying to do the same thing. Before we go to the next steps, I just want to give one warning because some of you may already be there. 
If right now, for the last 30 minutes, you've been thinking about the person you're going to send this message to, (laughs) or the person you're going to post on Facebook and hope sees it, before you do that, let God speak to you at least before you try to preach this message to somebody else. Because the people who are the world, they are not our enemy. The world is a system of practices and values. The world that's the enemy of your soul is not a person. Remember what Jesus said. For God loved the world, people, in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, often overlooked. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Our fight when it comes to the world is against the practices and ideas of the world. And our fight is for the people of the world. The world is a system of practices that has taken people captive. People are not our enemy. They're the very ones that Jesus' blood was shed for, like yours and like mine. So please, do not use this series as a weapon to hurt other people or preach to other people. And if you do share it, please, let it mess with you thoroughly first. Jesus said, the truth shall make you free, but what I have found is before we get free, we're miserable first. So embrace that before you move on to the next stage. Here's some next steps I'd encourage you to consider this week. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to read 1 John 2, 15 through 17 each morning this week. It will take you less time to read that than it will to brush your teeth the appropriate length of time. But just going into your day with an awareness of the world will shift how you go through your day and how you experience that forming that the world does and is seeking to do of us. So I'd encourage you, read those three verses every day this week. Second, I want to encourage you to pay attention and keep a list of the messages that you're receiving this week. So some of you, you're an analog person. I see you every week. You bring in a journal with you to take notes. That's great. Others of you, you're a phone person. Your whole life is in your notes app on your phone. So whatever works for you, pick a place. But this week, I want you to build a list in response to these two questions. When I'm hearing messages from this world, what am I being told is good and evil? And what am I being told the good life looks like? The life that I should be pursuing and searching after and running after. I just want you to make notes I don't need you to judge all those messages. I don't need you to decipher all those messages. Just write them down. When you watch a commercials, just have your phone out. You probably already do because who likes watching commercials? Instead of scrolling social, listen to the commercials and write the messages down. When you're talking to somebody about their life and what they think you should be doing, pay attention. What does the good life look like? Because there are some things that even our city and community tells us is the good life. And they may or may not be aligned with Scripture. And then number three, press closer towards the people you see pursuing Jesus around you. 
If we really are living in a world where we're experiencing the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we need each other. We need the strength and the encouragement. And so this week, maybe it's spending time with somebody that you've been putting off having lunch with. Maybe back in December, you said, yeah, we'll get together in the new year. Well, now it's the new year, so get together. Maybe you're in a group like Brett mentioned. What if you went this week and didn't make an excuse that you have a headache? But press closer in to those people around you so that together we can live no lies. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for your promise that in this world we will have trouble, but that we can take heart because you've overcome the world. There's lots of places, Jesus, where we've been taken captive, taken advantage of, we've bought into and lived lies. And we thank you for the reminder at the beginning of the service that as much as we sin, your grace and your mercy is more. So today, without any condemnation and without any shame, Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to get honest about the forces and the enemies that are fighting for our soul. And on the road to Easter, we pray that you would help us to experience victory, that you'd help us to realize the battles we're in and you'd help us to begin, because of your strength, to begin winning them. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear in this season, Lord. And help us to get ready to celebrate you bringing new life into our lives. We're thankful for what you're doing, Jesus, and we're excited for what's ahead. In your name we pray. Amen.